Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. That God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, we're so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. We are grateful that we have your word, that down through the centuries it has been preserved for us, and that we have the completed canon before us. What a privilege it is that we have complete scriptures in our own language that we can read, that we can study, and that we can come to understand you as you have revealed yourself to us. Now, Father, you have not only revealed to us the aspects related to our condition as sinners and the need for salvation in Jesus Christ, you have not only revealed to us the essence of the spiritual life, the mechanics of spiritual growth, but you have revealed to us our future destiny. And as we are reminded continuously in our study of Revelation that you are coming, you will come quickly, unexpectedly, and you will be bringing your reward with you and that that reward is for those who have put their faith alone in Christ alone, trusted in you for, your, for their salvation, and that our future destiny is, as part of that reward, is to rule and reign with you. And how, and how that works out is dependent upon our volition, especially in terms of our own response to your word and application in our lives. So, Father, as we study your word today, we, today may we... Focus our attention, concentrate, and be reminded that this is how God the Holy Spirit teaches us and challenges us to grow and mature in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles with me to the sixth chapter of Revelation. And while you're turning there, I want to have you think about a question. How do you respond to the Word of God? Now, I don't want you to answer that, raise your hand, or uh, anything else, but I want you to reflect upon that as we go through the study this morning. How do you truly respond to the Word of God? People respond in a lot of different ways. A lot of people give the Word of God lip service. By that, I mean they're the ones who will show up on a fairly regular basis on Sunday mornings. They will sometimes take notes. They take uh, learn the vocabulary. They like to be with 
other Christians because they're generally nice people and they agree with them about basic issues of life, but the they never really have an in-depth understanding for God's Word. They never really uh, make a priority out of living the spiritual life, and they basically just grow a little bit after salvation. It's comparable to those uh, first the first products of the, the initial products of the seed and the parable of the sower. Various issues in life somehow manage to distract them and to keep them from any kind of growth. But there are those within the body of Christ who are not satisfied with simply uh, co- coming to Bible class, learning a few things about the Word, but they realize that If God's word is what it claims to be, and the truths of God's word are what they claim to be, then really nothing else matters in life, and that life itself is to be focused on God's word, understanding it, and letting that work its way through every area of our life, every thought, every opinion, every concept, all the things we hold dear and things we don't. It is the word of God that transforms us, in terms of our thinking from the inside out, and not just having a facade, uh, superficial approach to Christianity or that veneer. There are others, though, some believers, most unbelievers, who when they hear the Word of God, it's like hearing fingernails on a blackboard. And their reaction is one of antagonism, hostility, Uh, even violence, and we live in a world today where the voice of the truth of God's word has that kind of an impact in Western civilization. I'm not talking about pagan Africa, which is almost gone. There's been a tremendous impact of Christianity there. I'm not talking about the reaction to God's word in Islamic countries or Hindu countries or Buddhist countries, but for the first time in almost uh, 1,700 years since Constantine converted to Christianity and legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire with the Edict of Toleration in in, uh, 315 A.D., for the first time, we live in a a world, in Western civilization, North America, South America, Europe, this is Western civilization. We live in a world that is increasingly antagonistic to Christianity culturally and politically. But because this is our heritage, this opposition is often couched in uh, acceptable ways. But this will only last for a while. Before long, it will become uh, instituted in law. And there are laws that are being passed in some countries that will have the force of limiting the freedom to hold to, to espouse, and to proclaim certain truths of God's word. Some of these have to do with hate speech laws. The other night I read an account that came out in uh, uh, the papers the other day of a, a man, homosexual, or as the Bible would call it, a sodomite, in uh, Michigan who is suing two Bible publishers because he has been caused such mental distress over the fact that the Bible lists 
uh, and in their translations they have translated correctly the word for homosexual, homosexual, and classified it as a sin. And because this has caused him such mental distress, he's now suing these publishers. So it's probably not going to go anywhere, but this is the wave of the future. Now we see the mechanics of this kind of reaction to God's word in the response to the judgments that we see in the seal judgments at the beginning of Revelation. So just by way of review, I have pointed out in the last three or four lessons that as we look at the doctrine of divine judgment in time throughout Scripture, there are two basic principles that we've seen that I've extracted from a look at Romans chapter 1. First of all, there's the discipline or judgment based on internal dynamics. We reap what we sow. There are certain things that we do that are wrong, that are foolish, that are sins, and they eventually culminate in bad, harmful consequences, bringing on adversity and self-induced suffering. This is the internal dynamic built uh, within the system that God has created. When man suppresses the truth, he lives on a fantasy concept as to how to live his life. The more he suppresses the truth, the more he divorces himself from reality and lives in a world that is basically a neurotic construct of his own imagination. And eventually that uh, neurotic construct, which is a house of cards, will blow down under the winds of adversity and he will reap what he sows. The second aspect of divine judgment I pointed out that we see in history are external dynamics when God intensifies the natural consequences of sin and evil with supernatural judgments, such as the flood at the time of Noah, the worldwide flood that wiped out everybody except the eight people that were on the ark with Noah. The judgments at the time of Israel's delivery from slavery in Egypt, those ten plagues were supernatural plagues. There are other times in history when God has uh, added to the natural uh, consequences. Now, this morning I want to add a third aspect to these divine judgments, and that is that God's judgments are designed to reveal the hardness of either the unbeliever's uh, rejection of God or the hardness of the believer's heart in a rejection of Bible doctrine. God's judgments, let me re repeat that, God's judgments are designed to reveal or to expose the hardness of either the unbeliever's heart or the believer's. And there are those who have a facade of religion and religious activity and morality that are in their heart hostile to God. And as these judgments come out from God, and this has happened several times historically, that it exposes their uh, duplicity, it exposes their... Uh, true rejection of truth in God's word and the response, whether they are an unbeliever or whether they are a carnal believer, is to uh, harden themselves against God and they become 
uh, hostile to God and react to God. It can happen to believers and, I mean, to unbelievers, and it can happen to unbelievers. We have phrases in the New Testament like the enemies of the cross, those who have fallen from grace is in a term for loss of salvation, but those who have departed from the doctrine of grace and understanding the truth of God's word. And this is what we see as we come to the last two seal judgments that we look at before the seventh, the fifth, and the sixth. So we'll just have a little review here of these uh, seal judgments. The rapture of the church has occurred, the judgment seat of Christ has occurred, and we're in the first three and a half years of what is known as the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And there is uh, uh, the Lamb of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, comes forth from the throne of God with this uh, sealed scroll, and he begins to open the scroll. With each seal that is broken, a, a new judgment comes out upon mankind. First, conquest, represented by the white horse in the verses 2 and 3. Then open warfare represented by the second horse, the red horse. So from conquest, a relatively nonviolent, I won't say peaceful, but a nonviolent conquest to uh, open warfare and peace is taken from the world. Then famine comes and these all flow naturally. There is a uh, this is the, all represented, or represented by that first category of internal dynamics that I mentioned, that then now there's a famine, and then there's an additional uh, fourth horse judgment, the uh, death. And this death includes uh, an intensification of the war from the second seal judgment, an intensification of the famine from the third seal judgment. And in addition to that, we have pestilence, and we have... Uh, death by wild beasts of the earth in an, in an intensified role that we haven't seen up to now. We come then to the uh, fifth and sixth judgments, which we're studying now, and the seventh judgment will be, seventh seal will be open and indicate uh, that there are seven more judgments called trumpet judgments. These judgments are uh, the fifth seal judgment, is called this judgment of martyrdom. We see that the souls of those who have been slain in a heavenly vision, they are under the altar in heaven, which I said is model, it could be either the brazen, uh, modeled after the brazen altar or the altar of incense, which relates to prayer. I think that's the one that is indicated here. They cry out with a loud voice, literally they scream toward God in their prayers. They are rewarded by being clothed with a white robe. It's um, uh, interesting that uh, a question came up. I didn't have time to address this last week. On the white robe, there is a white garment, white robe reward for church-age believers indicated in the uh, letter to the church at Sardis. So we see that this kind of thing is seen as a reward for uh, steadfastness for obedience, for victory for those who are overcomers in the church age. Church age believers, however, have already been taken from the earth in the rapture. They have already been evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ and are represented before the throne of God in Revelation 4 and 5 by the 24 elders. So what is this? Well, this is the same kind of thing as that white robe uh, award 
a sort of like a uniform, something that address that indicates a special award or reward for certain uh, obedience on the earth. This is that same kind of thing. There is nothing mentioned later on at the uh, time of the second coming related to a judgment of the tribulation martyrs. So it suggests that they are evaluated as they go through the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, there's the judgment of the sheep and the goats, which is a judgment related to those who survive the tribulation, the sheep being the believers who then go into the kingdom, and the goats are those who have uh, rejected Christ and are then taken off to condemnation. So the white robe indicates their award for their perseverance even to the point of death uh, during the tribulation. And they are encouraged, though, that God will not answer this prayer right now. Despite the horrors going on, the opposition, the martyrdom, the hostility, and we're, the, the verbiage that I pointed out last week in this particular uh, seal is that believers are slaughtered in incredible numbers. Hundreds of thousands to millions will be slaughtered because of the word of God and because of their testimony. So that shows this increasing opposition and reaction to God's word. This is depicted in the Olivet Discourse, parallel to what Jesus pointed out in Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse 9, uh, is parallel to Revelation 6, 9 to 11. The first column that we see there lines up the various seal judgments and then shows how they compare to... Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This chart is going to be posted up on the website for those who want to uh, have a little more time to look at it. Matthew 24, 9, Jesus said, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is not a reference to believers who become lost or lose their salvation. This is a reference to pseudo-Christians. Many make professions of being Christian and are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a huge difference between visible Christianity, Christendom, we might say. People who go to many, many churches have a, a rich church life but they have never put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. For them, church is many things, but it is not the place to go to learn the Word of God, to worship the crucified, risen Savior who paid the penalty for their sins, and they are only nominal Christians, professing Christians, but they have never put their faith alone in Christ alone, they will fall away because these judgments that come will expose or reveal their true nature, their true character. We read in Revelation 6, 9 last time in the beginning of the fifth seal judgment that, that John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had continuously maintained. It's an imperfect tense verb in the Greek which indicates ongoing action in past time, like a movie as opposed to a snapshot, which the aorist tense indicates. So they had an ongoing testimony despite 
the antagonism, the opposition, despite the threat of violence and persecution. These are believers who maintain their steadfast devotion to God uh, and are martyred because of it. And we see that in the tribulation period there will be this overt hatred and antagonism toward those who believe the Bible is the Word of God, those who are biblical Christians. And verse 9 uses the term martyria for testimony, which is where we get our word martyr, those who maintain their testimony to the point of death, and they continue to hold that testimony. Let's move on to verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? A couple of things I didn't get a chance to point out last time. They call him Lord. This is not curios. This is an interesting uh, use of the term here. This is the Greek word despotes. Despotes, and the difference here is that despotes emphasizes his sovereign authority. It's where we get our word despot, but in the Greek it doesn't have those negative connotations that the English word despot has. It has the emphasis, though, on his authority, on his sovereignty, and so they're calling upon God as the sovereign ruler of the universe as the ultimate judge of the universe, which is indicated by the term holy and true, and this is in an interesting construction in the Greek, which indicates that holy and true are seen as being bound up in one concept. He, holiness has to do with his uniqueness, and truth has to do with the fact that there is one and only one truth, and so they are bound together as an integral concept here by the way the Greek treats it, and we would, we would pull it together in English by using the word integrity, the unique integrity of God. This is what allows him to be the judge of the universe because he is the only one who has omniscience and thus knows all the facts, all the details. Nobody can uh, pull the wool over his eyes or blow smoke up his dress or whatever idiom you prefer to uh, communicate the idea that God can't be fooled. When we stand before God, either as believers at the judgment seat of Christ or unbelievers at the great white throne judgment, when man stands before the members of the Trinity, he knows that everything is exposed in its reality. There's no hiding behind it. So they are calling upon God as the sovereign, ultimate judge of the universe to be the one who will execute justice for them. And that's the idea in these two words, judging and avenging. The word that is translated avenging here is a word uh, that has the idea of justice. It is not vengeance in terms of personal retribution, but it is the idea of of, uh, executing judgment. It's the Greek word ekdikeo based on the the root, which is the basic verb for justice. So they're calling upon God as the true judge of the universe to finally intervene on their behalf in history. And he is to judge those who dwell on the earth. Last time I began to give a little summary because I was running out of time, and this morning I want to spend a little more time on this verse dealing with this phrase, those who dwell on 
on the earth. Verse 11 focuses on the reward that is given to each one of these martyrs, the white robe that they are given, but they are told that they need to wait, that it's not yet God's time to bring the conclusion to their suffering and to the injustice on the earth. That is in progress. God is doing that, but God will do things in a complete manner and uh, taking into account all the data which only an omniscient God can have. So we need to look at this concept, those who dwell on the earth, and find out who they are because this phrase is used several times in uh, the book of Revelation. But the concept that we'll see behind this phrase, the earth dweller, is an important concept that we see uh, throughout the scriptures. And the role of his judgment on the earth dwellers is going to open up a discussion thinking about how we respond to God's word and the role that God's word plays in history. This word is used, as I just pointed out, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. They want revenge or a vengeance on those who dwell on the earth, justice on the earth dwellers. Now, the earth dwellers is a technical term for those who have already rejected God and will never, no matter what happens, believe in God or believe in Christ. They are set and they will never change. God doesn't set them that way. That is the operation of their own volition. There are earth dwellers during the time of tribulation. There is another class of people, and that are, they are not referred to as earth dwellers. They are referred to as saints. These are those who believe in Jesus Christ, but every day in the tribulation period, hundreds of thousands of people will trust Christ as their Savior. We see that the number of martyrs, I pointed out last time looking at chapter 7, that the number of martyrs that John saw in heaven are without number, and yet there are very large numbers in other places in the book of Revelation. For example, I pointed out the 200 million a demon, demonic army that is released from under the Euphrates. So they, you can count very high in the book of Revelation. You have numbers like the thousand years of the kingdom. So there are very high numbers in the book of Revelation, yet John says the number of martyrs is innumerable. We can't number them. So there will be enormous numbers, millions of people during this time when the population on the earth will probably start close to where it is now, maybe 8, 9 billion people, approximately a quarter of those are killed during the first series of judgments, as we've learned. In the next series of judgments, a third of those who are left are killed, which basically means half are killed by the uh, halfway through the second half of the tribulation period. These are called earth dwellers, those who worship the Antichrist and are Uh, antagonistic to God, his plan, his purposes, and his people. There are those who are not part of that group, who will not worship the Antichrist, and among those there will be many who are saved, not necessarily all. So you basically have those three groups of people. Now in Revelation 3.10, we have the first time that this this term is used. Jesus is promising to the uh, church of Philadelphia that I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. And I pointed out last time 
that the Greek word here to test means to assay, to evaluate, to expose, to weigh, to prove the nature of something. The idea here is to expose their true nature, motivation, and belief. So this testing period is to uh, remove the veneer of morality, ethics, and religiosity from unbelievers on the earth and to expose them in all of their evil and hostility toward God. And that is basically the biblical definition of evil is to worship something other than God as God. Uh, When you go back into the Old Testament and you read that uh, chorus that is repeated over and over and over again through kings, first and second kings, on the kings of Israel that so-and-so followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and did evil in the sight of the Lord, that evil is always contextualized as idolatry. So that's uh, who these uh, e- these uh, evildoers are, the earth dwellers. They have rejected God, worshiping uh, something else in his place. Revelation 6.10 is the, excuse me, I'm going the wrong way. Revelation 8.13, the next place. You might want to, let's look at these contextually as we go through here. Just turn to Revelation chapter 8. The context relates to the seven trumpet judgments. So again, this is still in the uh, first half of the tribulation period. And in verse 13, we're in the fourth trumpet judgment. That is very similar to the sixth seal judgment in that there are uh, various manifestations in the geophysical plane, the sun's light is diminished by a third, the moon is diminished by a third, uh, the stars by a third, so that a third of them are darkened. Uh, and then verse 13, after that, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe to the inhabitants or the earth dwellers, those who dwell upon the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels that are about to sound, so that these earth dwellers are a particular object of divine judgment. Then in Revelation 11, uh, verse 10, this deals with the, uh, chapter 11 deals with the two witnesses, two Jewish prophets. Many believe this will be Elijah and Moses that are returned to uh, proclaim uh, the gospel during the time of the first half of the tribulation period, and they are opposed, as we see, by the earth dwellers. And in verse 10 we read, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. That is, when the Antichrist finally kills them, they have a worldwide party. It shows their antagonism, their hate for any those who have represented God, that they have a celebration over their execution. The next passage we find is in chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, which is the chapter that describes the two main evil personages of the end times, the beast. The first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. And in verse 8, we read that, um, uh, let's get the context. Verse 7 says, it was granted to him, that is the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. This is what causes the, antagoni- uh, the, the martyrdom 
of the saints. So it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to have victory over them. That same word, verb, nikao, that we have uh, based on the noun Nike, the goddess of victory, uh, not Nike. That's what you put on your shoes, This is on your feet. This is Nike, the goddess of victory. Same word. It means they have victory over the saints physically. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He becomes a worldwide dictator. And then in verse 8 we read, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. These are unbelievers who will remain unbelievers who will never, ever turn to God. They are hardened in their unbelief. And verse 12, skipping down, this is in the sec- dealing with the second beast, the false prophet, and he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and d- those who dwell in it, once again, earth dwellers, to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. This is idolatry, violation of the first commandment to have another God other than God. Romans chapter 1 says this is the core of all hostility toward God is to worship the creature rather than uh, the creator. So the earth dwellers worship the Antichrist, the first beast. And verse 14, the false prophet deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. He has false signs and wonders. They'll be legitimate in the sense that they will produce, I believe, real healings and real miracles but they will be fraudulent in the fact that they are not from God. So he will have these false signs and wonders, which will deceive many, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And so these who have opposed God will then uh, worship him. We go on to read in passages like uh, Revelation 14.6 that God's grace does not stop. Toward the earth dwellers, despite their opposition, he continues to give them the gospel. In fact, as we approach the end of the tribulation period towards the battle of Armageddon, God will send an angel, or maybe angels, but the text indicates a singular. John says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to the those who dwell on the earth. Same phrase. God's grace continues to reach out to those who are set against him, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Come to Revelation 17:8. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction just prior to the end of the tribulation at the Battle of Armageddon or campaign of Armageddon. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. This is when their house of cards comes crashing down and they finally realize that the beast will never give them uh, victory. This same terminology isn't being interpreted just on the basis of the New Testament, but it is found also in Old Testament passages. Isaiah 24:21. Uh, so it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. This is a similar phrase, the earthly kings. And this is a term that comes out of a section in Isaiah which emphasizes 
the, what happens just prior to the establishment of the kingdom. This is a, a context that, uh, that comes just towards the end of the tribulation. In the Old, uh, the Old Testament, we have these phrases where we juxtapose heaven and earth, and this indicates that he's not just talking about land, which the word could mean related to Israel, but the contrast of heaven and earth indicates he's talking about the entire, the entire globe. And these uses, now there's many uses of land dwellers, which relates to Israel living in the land, but there's about uh, eight or nine that relate to this time at the end of the tribulation period that are, that's worldwide. And the, there is this indication of judgment against them. And in Isaiah 24 to 27, this is used uh, several different times. For example, in Isaiah 26, 9, for when the earth experiences thy judgments, that's during the tribulation period, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. This is their experiential learning when they are going through the testing. So this is the counterpoint to the testing because God is teaching about his righteousness and his righteous judgment. Uh, the final two verses of Isaiah 26 indicate that this is in the tribulation period, especially in relation to Israel. In verse 21, we read, For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Uh, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So this indicates that the context of Isaiah 24 to 26 is this time of judgment and parallels what is said in Revelation 3, Revelation 6, Revelation 8, and ongoing. Now, the legal basis for this judgment goes back to the Noahic covenant, the everlasting covenant as it's stated in Isaiah 24, 5. This is the covenant God made with Noah, and on the basis of that covenant, God judges the Gentiles. They're not judged on the basis of the Mosaic law. That was only for Israel. They're judged on the basis of their violation of the Noahic covenant, which establishes the error of idolatry. So the Noahic covenant continues in effect even today. We know that because you see the a rainbow. And whenever you see a rainbow, it should remind you of at least three provisions in the Noahic covenant. The first provision is that God authorized capital punishment and that those who commit, especially murder, should be executed. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood should also be shed. So the first thing that you should celebrate and remember when you see the rainbow is that, uh, that of capital punishment and that this is biblical and divinely instituted. The second thing you should remember is that you should enjoy a good steak because it's also in the uh, uh, Noahic covenant that God establishes the fact that man should now eat meat. Before that, they did not, but starting then, they were to eat meat. And the third thing is that uh, there are other things, but the third thing you should celebrate is that God will not again destroy the earth by water. But that reminds us that he will destroy the earth in the future through fire, a fiery judgment when he then will create the new heavens and the new earth. And that is part of the judgment uh, 
uh, process. Now, what we see happen as a result of the proclamation of God's word by the witnesses, by the uh, those who are martyred, is that the heart of the uh, these unbelievers, the kings, the rulers, is hardened. What is your response to God's word? Next time, I want to come back and talk some about the hardening of the heart, but to, just to close things out this morning, we should be reminded that both unbelievers and believers can harden their heart toward God. One of the classic pictures of the hardening of believers' hearts to the word of God is in Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, 8, God says to the Israelites, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. This section is picked up and quoted three times by the writer of Hebrews and applied to church-age believers that we are not to harden our hearts to God's word. That's the context. God speaks to us. And he gives us his word, and the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, quoting from Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as the Israelites did in the Old Testament. But unbelievers will harden their hearts. Their rejection of God will become intensified by God's judgment. That is part of its purpose is to expose their hardened hearts, their rejection of him as God brings about justice and the judicial uh, the judicial uh, destruction of evil during the tribulation period. But it is not just a book of judgment. It is a book of grace, as I pointed out. Throughout the tribulation, God will continue to bring the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to these unbelievers who are hardened against them because God, God's desire is that all be saved. And even though they harden themselves, God still continues to reach them with the gospel until uh, there's no more time and they're no longer alive. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these doctrines related to the future, recognizing that they have implications for us today and that they are simply, uh, in many ways, an exaggeration, magnification of principles that are that you have operated on throughout history. It is just that they are taken to new levels in the tribulation period. What we learn from this is judgment is coming. Judgment comes today upon those who do not listen to your word. We are admonished by the writer of Hebrews not to harden our hearts, not to resist the teaching of your word, not to ignore the teaching of your word, not to take the teaching of your word lightly, but to make it a priority in our lives, recognizing that even as believers, though we cannot lose salvation, there are consequences at the judgment seat of Christ that will indicate loss of reward, loss of position, loss of privilege, even in the millennial kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is not sure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, but they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. You have declared in your word that there is only one way to have eternal life, and that is by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It is not a matter of works. It's not a matter of church attendance or involvement 
or religious activity. It is simply a matter of trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. This is the confidence that you can have, the hope that you can have for all eternity, because Jesus died for you. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with what we've learned today, that we might not take the teaching of your word lightly or ignore it, but that it might reverberate in our souls under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.